Right, um, I wonder how many Christian hymns can you bring to mind that have a militaristic feel to them? Think of uh, onward Christian soldiers marching as to war. Stand up, stand up for Jesus, you soldiers of the cross. Fight the good fight with all your might. Lots of them, aren't there? Um, soldiers of Christ, arise and put your armour on. And you might think, well, that's all old hymns. But even more modern songs pick up on that theme, don't we? Our first song this evening was, Oh Church, arise and put your armour on. So... A lot of hymns have that sort of militaristic feel to them. And superficially, that could give quite an alarming impression, couldn't it? Um, but they are based on a, a clear biblical emphasis. Chapter 4 of, of, one, uh, of 1 Peter really begins with what we could call a, a call to arms. Uh, in verse 1. Peter gives another one of his imperatives. You know, throughout the letter, he's, he's given lots of, of imperatives. And the one he has here in verse 1 is, arm yourselves. So he's telling his readers to arm themselves. And he's not alone in using that sort of language. Uh, I guess Ephesians 6 immediately comes to mind, doesn't it? Where Paul urges his readers to put on the whole armour of God. Uh, and he speaks in other places of, of armour and taking up weapons and so on. And what sort of picture does it conjure up in your mind when you, you hear about putting on armour and, and taking up weapons and so on? I mean, it could sound quite jingoistic, couldn't it? You know, it sounds a bit like sabre rattling. Uh, you think of taking up weapons to defend yourselves against an enemy or to attack an enemy... Um, at the very least, it, it suggests facing a struggle, it suggests hard work, it suggests discipline. And it is an appropriate picture because although being a Christian uh, involves joy uh, and, and confidence in this life, it also involves effort and facing hardship because we are under attack. We're under attack from the world, we're under attack from the flesh, we're under attack, attack from the devil. Now Peter hasn't suddenly issued this call to arms out of the blue. We, we mustn't think that chapter 4 is somehow separate from chapter 3. Um, he begins chapter 4 by saying, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh. And saying that is a reiteration of what he'd said back in chapter 3, verse 18, where he said, for Christ also suffered. And he went on to say that he'd done so by being put to death in the flesh. Now the word therefore in our passage indicates that he's, he's drawing a conclusion from the fact that Christ suffered in the flesh. See now, Peter had mentioned Christ suffering in the flesh in the context of having spoken of believers suffering for righteousness sake and it being better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. That, that's what led on to him saying that Christ suffered in the flesh. 
and the chapter went on to conclude that his suffering resulted in the fact that he has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities and powers having been subjected to him. The point was that Christ's suffering was the pathway to his victory and his exhortation. So it's in view of that context that Peter goes on to issue what we might consider to be a call to arms. What does he mean by saying uh, that believers in Christ are to arm themselves? Well, from verses 1 to 6, I think we can see five points in connection with this call to arm yourselves. And we can see the requirements for arming ourselves, the result of arming ourselves, the reason for arming ourselves, and the response to us arming ourselves, and the reassurances in arming ourselves. So firstly, the requirements for arming ourselves. The first, the most obvious question is, with what are we to arm ourselves? What does arming ourselves actually require? Now, it goes without saying, doesn't it, that Peter doesn't have any physical weapons in mind. You know, he learned that lesson for himself through personal experience. Um, he'd learned it firsthand uh, from, from Jesus, hadn't he? Remember what Peter did when the mob was about to arrest Jesus in the garden. Uh, we read about it in John 18, 10 to 11. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his ear. And was Jesus grateful to, to Peter for defending him in that way? Uh, did he commend him for what he'd done? No, the, the text continues by saying, So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Jesus made it quite clear, didn't he, that the use of physical weapons was not appropriate. And Paul also makes it clear that the weapons that we're to use are not physical weapons. Uh, 2 Corinthians 10, 3 to 4. We read there, For though we walk, walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. It's not physical weapons, different sorts of weapons altogether. Well, if we're not to arm ourselves with physical weapons, what are we to arm ourselves with? In 1938, uh, a pseudo-Christian movement known as Moral Rearmament, well, that's a hard word to say, rearmament, uh, was started. And it promoted um, living according to four moral absolutes of purity, unselfishness, honesty and love uh, as a way to defend against warfare. Well, did that movement capture the sense of what Peter had in mind when he urged us to arm ourselves. Are we to arm ourselves with morality? Well, commendable as it might sound, uh, the biblical teaching is always concerned more, with more than mere outward morality. The biblical emphasis is always that any real change and any real power comes from what God 
works within us and not from any attempts that we make to be externally moral. So what weapon does Peter want us to arm ourselves with? We see from the text it's not a physical weapon, it's not morality, rather Peter says arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. The NIV says with the same attitude. So we're to arm ourselves with a way of thinking. We're to arm ourselves with an attitude. Now if someone uh, has an attitude, that often has quite negative connotations, doesn't it? If you say someone has uh, an attitude, it either means that their behaviour tends to be arrogant or disrespectful or, or that they have a, a surly negative outline, uh, outlook on, on most things. brings to mind, uh, do you remember Kevin the teenager in Harry Enfield uh, and Chums? He was always uh, stomping around and saying, it's so unfair! That, that's an attitude, isn't it? And certainly Peter isn't saying that we're to arm ourselves with that sort of attitude. <coughs> Clearly, we know more to arm ourselves in, in that way than with physical weapons or morality. Saying that we're to arm ourselves with a way of thinking or an attitude means that we are to arm ourselves with a particular outlook, a particular mindset. You know, you might remember uh, a song that was popular in the 80s that went, don't worry, be happy. Is that the outlook that Peter was encouraging? You know, always look on the bright side of life. I mean, that, that's an attitude, that's an outlook. Might, might be helpful in, in some respects. Is that the sort of attitude that Peter is thinking about? And certainly the power of positive thinking is very much vaunted in our society nowadays, isn't it? Is that the way of thinking that we're to arm ourselves with? Are we to force ourselves to be optimistic, come what may? Well, you, you notice that Peter's speaking of the same way of thinking, or the same attitude. So we need to answer the question, the same as what? The same as what? Well, Peter began uh, by saying, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh. The point is that since Jesus suffered... We as his people should expect to suffer too. Peter's already made that very clear throughout the whole of, of chapter 3. But now he's going on to say that our attitude towards suffering should be the same as that of Jesus. What was his attitude towards suffering? Well, it, not only did he expect it, but he accepted it. He even embraced it. Uh, in fact, he, he chose it. Suffering wasn't simply something that happened to him. He deliberately chose it. Uh, he said in, uh, in John 10 verse 18, No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I'm, I'm not dodging suffering. Quite the opposite. I, I'm, I'm moving towards it. I, I'm, I'm embracing it. That was his attitude towards that the suffering that he had to endure, he deliberately chose it. 
And we've already seen what he said to Peter. Uh, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? You see his attitude there. There was a determination to face the suffering that, that was in store for him. He had no intention of trying to avoid it. Um, we see the same emphasis in, in Matthew's account of the same event. In Matthew 26, 52 and 53, we read that Jesus said, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by, by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father, and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? You see, Jesus could have been defended by infinitely more effectively than any defence that, that Peter could offer with his little sword. 12,000 legions of angels could have come to his defence, could have come to his aid. But he deliberately chose not to call on all those resources that were at his disposal. It would have been very easy for him to avoid suffering, but he deliberately chose to face it. To advocates of modern day positive thinking, that would sound rather defeatist, rather fatalistic or even downright stupid. But you see, the reality is that positive thinking usually has no sound basis uh, at all. It often amounts to nothing more than unrealistic, wishful thinking. Now, in contrast, Jesus was realistic about his suffering and he could embrace it positively. Why? Well, not because of helpless defeatism, not on the basis of wishful thinking, because, but because he knew his father was at work in all that was happening. He said, shall I not drink the cup that the father has given me? God the father who sent him, sent him for that very purpose, to, to drink the cup. To go to the cross, to suffer and die. So it's not positive thinking that's being encouraged, but realistic thinking in light of the fact that our Father is in control and working out all things for our good. You know, just as soldiers are prepared for battle, as Christians, we're to be prepared for suffering. We're to arm ourselves with the knowledge that suffering will come. And we're to arm ourselves with, with that disposition to, to face it with confidence because we know God is in control. So that's to be our way of thinking. That's to be our attitude. Suffering, it goes with the territory for the believer in Christ. And we don't necessarily crave it. We don't welcome it. But when it comes, we, we accept it. We, we face it positively. As Christ did. Well, next, the result of arming ourselves. Or you could ask, what are we arming ourselves against? And Peter continues by saying, For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. He's saying to, we're to arm ourselves with this attitude that we'll positively embrace suffering even if suffering, we're suffering for doing what is right, because being willing to suffer in that way shows that we've ceased to sin.
someone just walked past us. Mm. Right, we'll carry on. <laughs> that was a, a strange interruption, wasn't it? Yeah. I saw everybody jump. <laughs> This baby seems to be on the tape here. <laughs> Dogs calming them down. Right, so yeah, um, this is saying that to our, we're to arm ourselves with this attitude. Um, that we'll positively embrace suffering even if we're suffering for, for doing good or for doing what is right because being willing to suffer in that way shows we've ceased from sin or the NIV has done with sin. Now we must be very careful not to misunderstand uh, what's being said there. Firstly, it's not saying that our own suffering in some way deals with our sin or gets rid of our sin or or stops us from sinning. Suffering as such is no defence against sin. Make no mistake, it's the shed blood of Christ that cleanses us from sin. And it's the work of the Holy Spirit within us that enables us uh, to sin less so that we grow in holiness. And secondly, we, we mustn't think that Peter's talking about sinless perfection here. You know, the Bible's very clear that we can never expect to be completely without sin in this life. Remember John's letter, he says, if anyone says he is without sin, he deceives himself, and the truth is not in him. We, we are plagued by sin throughout this life. So when Peter says, cease from sin or done with sin, he doesn't mean never to sin in, in any way again. In that case, what does Peter mean when he speaks of having ceased from sin? Well, I think he goes on to clarify it in verse 2, where he says, So as to live for the rest of time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Now, by the rest of the, the time in the flesh, he really means the rest of your earthly life. He's talking about a change in the way that you live that life. He says that you live no longer for human passions. So the words no longer indicate that human passions used to motivate us. Human passions used to be what, what lay behind all that we did. But they don't motivate us anymore. He's already alluded to that in the letter in chapter 1 verses 14 to 15. He said... As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. You see, those passions dominated a believer's former self. But things have changed. Once you've come to faith in Christ, once you've been born again, things have changed. And then in chapter 2, verse 11, he said, Behold, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, 
which wage against your soul. So to have ceased from sin is to live no longer for human passions. Instead of being motivated by, by simple human desires, it's to be motivated by the desire to do the will of God. Arming yourself with the willingness and readiness to suffer for righteousness sake or, or to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, enables you to resist human passions or, or to abstain from the passions of the flesh. It enables you to defend yourself against the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul and instead to live for the will of God. Well, how does that work? Well, the point is, if you have the attitude that you're willing to suffer for righteousness sake, you're showing commitment to doing the will of God. It's being faithful to doing the will of God that leads to suffering. And if you're, uh, and you're not prepared to suffer, uh, if you're not prepared to suffer, what does that say about your commitment? If, if you're only prepared to suffer, uh, to, to do the will of God so long as it's easy, then, uh, uh, and if it's painless, then, then human passions are still in control, aren't they? It's what's easy for you that, that matters. That's what's dominating what you're doing. If you're willing to suffer for the sake of God and the gospel, then you've armed yourself against the attack of human passions. Well, that's the, the result of arming yourselves. Next, let's consider the reason for arming ourselves. We read there in chapter 3, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. So it begins with four. So Peter's now giving a reason for arming ourselves with that way of thinking that's willing to suffer for the sake uh, of the faith as Jesus did. What reason does he give for doing that? Well, well the ESV says the time that is past suffices. Uh, the NIV says you have spent enough time. In other words, enough is enough. You've spent enough time doing what? Well, the ESV says doing what the Gentiles want to do. The NIV has doing what pagans choose to do. And as we've seen previously in the letter, but by Gentiles or, or pagans, Peter means unbelievers. That, that's his way of referring to those who have not come to faith in Christ as their saviour. Now the expression, what the Gentiles want to do, or what pagans choose to do, um, it should literally be translated as the will of the Gentiles because it's the same Greek word as is used in verse 2 for the will of God. And Peter goes on uh, to give some examples of what the Gentiles want to do. He mentions living sensually, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties and lawless idolatry. That those are some examples of living for human passions. You read that list and you think, oh, perish the thought. doesn't appeal to me at all. Why is that? Because you're a believer. It's because a change has taken place. You, you go out amongst Joe Public and read out the list to, to them. Most of them are going to say, well, I like the sound of that. Yeah, I like that one. I'm 
I'm not sure about that. I might give that one a miss, but overall, that sounds pretty good to me. But that, that's where we were. That's what we were. But we're not anymore. That's what dominated us, dominated us when we were unbelievers. And it's completely at odds with doing the will of God. The point that Peter's stressing uh, as the reason for arming ourselves is that we spent more than enough time living in that way before we came to Christ. Even if you came to Christ at a very young age, it was still too much. That, that was more than enough. More than enough. So in coming to Christ, we say no more. We, we renounce our old way of life. We want to make it a clean break with sin. So we need to arm ourselves against slipping back to living for human passions. And we do that by being ready to suffer for the will of God. So that's the reason that Peter gives us for arming ourselves. And next, let's consider the response to us arming ourselves. In other words, how are we to expect those around us to react to us arming ourselves with that determination to suffer for doing the will of God rather than joining them in doing what they want to do and, and following the dictates of, uh, of our human passions. Well, we see a, a twofold response here uh, in verse 4. Firstly, we read, with respect to this, they are surprised. They think it's strange. They think we're a bit odd. They think it's strange. They, they, they can't comprehend our behaviour. What are they surprised about? Well, according to the ESV, they're surprised that you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. What a wonderful term. That lovely puritanical term. Flood of debauchery. Um, the phrase join them is, is a bit weak. The, the Greek word really means to, to rush along with others. It's not just joining them. It's, it's to run with the pack. It's to be taken up with the thrill of, of the herd mentality. The idea is of, of rushing headlong with reckless abandon or, or to plunge into something. Um, the NIV picks up on that idea by saying they think it's strange that you do not plunge with them picture that's conjured up in my mind is really that of a whole bunch of lemmings running over the cliff edge and plunging into the sea. You know, they're, they're so taken up with the thrill of being part of that charging horde that they can't comprehend that anybody else would not want to be there with them. It's all so thrilling and exhilarating. They're so taken up with it and they don't stop to think about what's going on. They don't think about that cliff edge. They don't think about drowning in the sea. That they're, they're living for the moment and it's great. And surely everybody else would want to do the same thing with them. But what does Peter say that unbelievers are plunging into? Well, he describes it as a, a flood of debauchery. Or the um, NIV puts flood of dissip dissipation. So that word plunge um, fits in quite well, doesn't it, with the fact that Peter speaks of entering uh, a flood. The image of a flood perhaps indicates um, the idea of a, an excess, 
you know, you talk about flooding the market or something, it's putting so much stuff out there that it, it takes over, it's going to an excess. Or it perhaps also suggests something that's widespread. And the idea is that this debauchery or, or dissipation, it's commonplace. It, it seems to be the norm. So to those who are caught up with it, uh, it's incredible that anyone wouldn't join in. So for someone to be willing to suffer for doing the will of God, rather than joining in with all that, all that fun, all that thrill of hedonistically following their passions, seems very strange to them. They're surprised, to say the least. But you see, their response doesn't stop at being surprised. Because secondly, we see that Peter goes on to say, and they malign you, or and they heap abuse on you. So we see that the response quickly goes from surprise to hostility. Because they find it strange, they go on the offensive. That's very, a very common response, isn't it, to people who are different or, or, or not understood. You think of the way in which perhaps school children might cruelly make fun of, of handicapped classmates. It, it makes no sense, but it's a common, a very common reaction, isn't it? Why? It's because they're different and, and they can't understand that difference. Well, as Christians, we're different and the world can't understand that difference. So it responds with hostility. Saying that they malign you or heap abuse on you suggests that the opposition primarily takes the form of, of verbal abuse. And Peter's already mentioned that back in chapter 2.12. You remember he said, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honourable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That being spoken against it is part of, of the suffering that we are to willingly bear. Remember, uh, Peter said in chapter 3, 14 to 17, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honour Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defence against anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behaviour in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So that's the response that we can expect. But then finally, the reassurances in, in arming ourselves. I think we see two reassurances in verses 5 and 6. Uh, firstly, in verse 5, we see that Peter goes on to say, they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And by they, he means those who live for human passions uh, and indulge in the ensuing flood of debauchery and those who malign believers for, for being different and for not joining with them. They seem to be whooping up, that they seem to be having a good time. They seem to be quite dominant and intimidating. 
but we have the reassurance that the tables will be turned because they'll one day have to give account to God. This is it's courtroom language, isn't it? It refers to, to the final judgment. Uh, it speaks of him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. He will judge the living and the dead and that shows uh, that this judgment is, is inescapable. Everyone who has ever lived will stand before God as judge on that day. That, that he's ready to judge suggests that this judgment it could come at any time. The reassurance uh, that, that stems from recognising that the final judgment is coming lies in knowing that those who malign us will eventually have their comeuppance. Justice will be done. That thought encourages us to arm ourselves with the willingness to suffer for the sake of God's will in this life. But the second reassurance lies in the words in verse 6 where Peter says, for this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Now, as with some of the uh, previous passages in the letter, that's quite difficult to understand. Uh, for the sake of time, I'm not going to delve into, into that in, in detail, but we just need to grasp the gist of Peter's words here. Uh, and quickly see how they provide a reinsurance to, to arm ourselves with, with this readiness to suffer for Christ's sake. That the verse begins by saying, for this is why the gospel was preached. So the word for points back to verse 5, where Peter was speaking about final judgment. You see, the gospel exists because there's to be a final judgment. That that's why the, the gospel message of salvation through faith in Christ is needed, you know, if, if there was no final judgment, well, you wouldn't need to be saved. You, you wouldn't need a gospel. But because of the reality of the final judgment, uh, we, we need, we desperately need the, the, the gospel message. We, we need that salvation that God has provided in Christ. That's why God provided it. That's why the gospel message is preached. It's so that those who believe can face judgment and not be condemned. Peter goes on to say, even to those who are dead. Now, by those who are dead, what, what, what I think he meant there is those who are now dead. They're, they're people that in the past have, have heard the gospel, they've believed, but they're now dead. The gospel had been preached to them uh, at the time that Peter was writing the letter, but they died. They were then physically dead. Now, some of them might even have died as a direct result of, of the sort of persecution that Peter's been, been talking about. But whatever the situation, that they've heard, they've believed, and they're now dead. You can imagine that some of Peter's readers could well have found themselves wondering, well, what's the point of being willing to suffer for Christ if you end up dying the same as everybody else anyway. Well, Peter's next word is that or, or so that. So that, that's a, a purpose clause. Uh, and he's going on to explain what the preaching of the gospel achieves for those who receive it. 
But before stating the purpose, he inserts those words, though judged in the flesh, the way people are. You see, before saying what the preaching of the gospel achieves, he says what it doesn't achieve. It doesn't enable anyone to escape being judged in the flesh the way people are. What does that mean? Well, I think it refers to physical death. What it's saying is that believing in Christ uh, doesn't mean that, that we escape dying physically. It doesn't mean that, that we can avoid that. But it, it's referring to that physical death which came into the world as a result of Adam's sin. And everyone, Christian or non-Christian alike, is subject to that physical death. Uh, unless you happen to be alive when Christ returns. But apart from that one proviso, everyone dies. There's no escaping it. So why the gospel was preached to people, it, it, he said it was so that they might live in the spirit, the way God does. So you see, although we face physical death, just as unbelievers do, when it comes to the final judgment, we won't be condemned as unbelievers will be. We'll live in the spirit the way God does. We look forward to that eternal spiritual life. Those who had heard and received the gospel and had died, well, they, they might seem to have been judged, just like everyone else, but they haven't. They're alive forevermore. They're, they're with the Lord. Well, what a, a, a staggering thought, that they live the way that God does. They, they, they live an eternal, holy, glorious life. So we can be reassured that arming ourselves with that willingness to suffer for Christ in this life, it's, it's not a foolish thing. Paul said in Romans 8 verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 18, he said, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory, beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So arm yourselves with that willingness to suffer for the sake of Christ. Compared to that eternal weight of glory uh, that Jesus has secured for us, well, any such suffering is a momentary affliction. doesn't seem it at the time. But in the overall perspective, it is uh, a light, momentary affliction. So we're back to what we were saying, saying this morning, wasn't it, about the, the broken systems. Broken systems or be prepared to suffer for that eternal weight of glory. And may God enable us to keep that perspective uh, in our lives day by day. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, 
who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen and establish you. To him be the dominion for ever and ever. Amen.